Hello and welcome to the Lowdown, an insider's look at stories touching our lives here on Cape Cod and beyond. My name is Ira Wood, and you're listening to us on WOMR 92.1 FM Provincetown, WFMR 91.3 FM Orleans, and always streaming on WOMR.org. Although I try not to take people's knowledge of history for granted these days, I'm confident that most of our readers have heard of Reconstruction, the period following the American Civil War during which attempts were made to redress the inequities of slavery and readmit the states that had seceded. One common teaching, at least according to the lost cause narrative, is that Reconstruction simply failed. Failed to redistribute land, failed to make former slaves self-sufficient, and failed to enforce black people's civil rights. But revisiting overlooked historical sources, my guest today offers a more honest take, and one that strongly resonates today. She tells us that Reconstruction did not simply fail. Rather, Southern white conservatives, with the tacit approval of whites in the North and West, overthrew it. Kadada E. Williams is a professor at Wayne State University in Detroit, where she researches African Americans' experiences of racist violence and teaches history. She's the author of two previous books, as well as articles in many scholarly journals. Today we're talking about her latest book, I Saw Death Coming, A History of Terror and Survival in the War Against Reconstruction. Professor Williams, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. So your book makes the point that Reconstruction did not simply fail. It was overthrown in a violent war on freedom waged by people who were apoplectic about their defeat on the battlefield and emancipation. Can you explain it all for us? Sure. I think the story we've been told is that wars that wars end neatly, right? Um, and the Civil War didn't end neatly, just like most wars don't. It was replaced by a new conflict. And that new conflict was the war that white Southerners wage to sustain slavery as much as possible. And so we can see from when they attacked, who they attacked, and even some of the things they said when they attacked people, um, that they were determined to sustain slavery as much as possible. And when Black people fought and resisted that, they often escalated the violence. Um, and that's how we get the establishment of what I call this war on freedom. You don't use the word plantation in reference to the agricultural estates that used enslaved people to produce cash crops. Tell us the term you do use and why. I think I use like the language of a labor concentration camp. And that's um, where historians are in terms of pushing back against this sort of slavery nostalgia feelings that we sometimes get when people talk about plantations. Today, plantations are often places where some people go for weddings and cotillions, etc. Um, and that ignores the fact that Black people were held there in bondage against their will, and they were forced to toil under the most horrific circumstances. And so we use that language of a labor concentration camp to sort of draw, to make sure that people understand what's really taking place there. Yeah, I don't think many people would want to have their weddings at a slave labor concentration camp if it was relabeled. I think that's a brilliant idea. Um, former enslavers did not want to lose their labor force, their slaves. 
You tell us that sometimes they actually even refused to release their children. What are some of the ways that they tried to keep people who were freed by the Emancipation Proclamation and the end of the war? What, what were some of the ways that they tried to keep them on the plantations, on the slave labor camps? Well, they do a number of things. They use some of the exact same violence they had used before the war and during the war to corral people to limit their mobility. And, you know, that often forces people to flee, to try to escape the farms and plantations where they were being held, just like they had before the war. We've got a number of instances where Black veterans from the war are returning home to gather their wives and children and family members, and they're often killed in the process. And so you've got armed guards in certain circumstances. In other circumstances, they're, um, the newly freed people are told that they can leave, but they must leave their children behind. There are numerous instances where parents are driven, adult parents are driven off farms and plantations with, and they're forced to leave their children behind uh, and their children never see them again. And they're often driven off by the threat of death, either their own deaths or the deaths of their children if they don't leave them behind. And so they're put in this horrific condition. But I think that matters because it sort of illuminates the reality that the former enslaving class, that a lot of them were not, you know, they were committed to holding on to slavery as much as possible. And one way you do that is by holding on to the children. Now, the language they use, you know, when African-Americans fight back and they try to get their children back, the language that the former enslaving classes, um, the former enslaving class use is apprenticeship. You know, and they sort of cast themselves as better able to take care of these children, these black children, than their own actual able-bodied parents can. And because you need um, the sort of economic system or the labor system to get back up and running after the war, there are forces within the South and within the sort of federal government that allows, that will allow for a period of time these planters to hold on to black people's children. Amazing. Formerly enslaved people worked very hard to become free and productive citizens in the aftermath of the Civil War, which, as your book tells me, and I knew nothing about, included the largest biological crisis of the 19th century, which totally makes sense since the land was destroyed and so many battlefields replaced farms, etc. Can you talk about those times and some of the ways that, as you say, formerly enslaved people picked themselves up from slavery and, and sprinted into freedom? Yes. You know, they have to survive the war. And one of the things that we know about enslaved people during the war is they've got Two, they've got two harsh realities. A lot of people are escaping slavery and they find themselves in these uh, refugee camps. And these are labeled refugee camps at the time. Some of them will later be called freedmen's camps. And no one, hardly anyone is prepared for the refugee crisis that we see in the Civil War. And that is the case for both Black and white refugees. There are often more people who need food, shelter, medical supplies, et cetera, um, than are available. In many instances, they barely have enough for the soldiers, much less for all of the refugees. And so what we see is a lot of people are dying um, 
they escape slavery, they make it to, you know, what we could call freedom, but they die before the end of the war in these camps because there are yellow fever outbreaks, there's starvation, um, there are all of these things that are going on that make it very difficult for them to survive. And what we know is that because enslavers perpetually kept the people they held in bondage malnourished, what we see during the war while they're in these camps is that a lot of people are not physically healthy enough to fight off uh, the kinds of infectious diseases that might wipe through a camp that a healthy population is. And it's, again, because of their because they are chronically malnourished. So that leads to a lot of dying in the camps. The other phenomena that we have in the camps, particularly in the Western theater of the war, is going to be the the deliberate targeting of camps by militia groups, by Confederates, et cetera. And what we see them doing is dragging people back to slavery or massacring them in the camps. And so this is a great period of dying, uh, you know, and this is the non-combatant population that is experiencing this. So people have to survive the war and they have to survive the hardship after the war in order to sprint into freedom. And so the people I talk about in my book, they have survived this, they have survived the dying season. Um, and they are running as fast as they can to make as much, um, to sort of achieve all of the goals that they had for living as free people. They work harder for themselves than they did for the people who held them in bondage. They've got freedom on their mind. They've got, you know, they know they're going to have to work. Their labor has been stolen for all of their lives. Um, and so they know they're going to have to work because they need shelter. They need food. They need to provide for their families. And they're doing all of these things. And for a number of people, it takes like a year or two, sometimes three, for them to really get up and running. You know, they acquire land. Sometimes it can take three years for them to acquire land, but they manage to do that. And they establish churches, they establish schools, they reunite their families, they run for office once they're able to vote, some of them win, and they do all of the things that they're supposed to do and all of the things that they dreamed about doing. And that is why um, they will be targeted in this war on freedom. They make the most of it. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood and WOMR. Today we're talking about the violent conservative aftermath of the American Civil War. My guest is Professor Kadada E. Williams. Her latest book is I Saw Death Coming, A History of Terror and Survival in the War Against Reconstruction. Um, the hardest part of the book to read are those that detail the cruelty and sadism inflicted on formerly enslaved people. You did extensive research on the testimonies of people who were victims of the paramilitary strikes of the Night Raiders and the Klan. What were the methods of the Klan and what did they ultimately want? So... They want, they want a variety of things. A lot of it is to sort of put the genie back in the bottle in terms of slavery being abolished. Um, and we see them targeting black landowners, you know, because for a lot of, you know, members of the Klan and even, you know, those who aren't in the Klan, but who embrace white supremacy and who object to emancipation, what we see is their worst fears come to light. You know, Black people have surpassed their expectations, they have defied the odds, and they have made the absolute most with freedom. 
And, you know, what we see from white supremacists was, you know, the sort of lie that black people, they can't take care of themselves. They're all going to die off in freedom. Um, you know, the rights and votes uh, are wasted on them. And black people sprinting into freedom proved them, you know, proved that lie wrong. But I think what matters more about that is that the former Confederates who are waging this war on freedom knew that if Black people had a chance, they would make the most of it. And so what they want to do is to tear down everything they built so that they leave Black people with nothing, you know, to leave them in a position where they have to accept only what the former Confederates were willing to give them, which is essentially very much like slavery. So they want to tear down everything that they built to leave them with nothing. So they're forced to accept the scraps that the white supremacist population is willing to give them. So they burned down their homes. They visited them at night and terrorized them. They tortured them, raped them. I, it, it, the, the book tells such an incredible story of humiliation and terror. Um, I've heard the term white peace used to describe the attitudes of the northern and western white people who really didn't much care about the former slaves who were being terrorized. So my question is, having been involved in four years of a bloody civil war, why were they indifferent to the aftermath and the consequences that were happening to black people? I think they were indifferent because a lot of them only begrudgingly accepted slavery's abolition in order to end the war. You know, we talk we talk a lot about the lost cause of the South. We don't talk about the what I call you know what might be called the abolitionist cause of the North, which is the sort of mythology that white Northerners create after the Civil War, which is essentially that they were all abolitionists. And that's absolutely not the case. And we see that through their response to the rise in this war on freedom. You know, they only reluctantly accept the emancipation in order to end the war quickly. They're willing to tolerate this movement for rights, although a lot of them object to it. And I think part of what we don't acknowledge is the fact that you've got a diversity of white people in the country. So just as you have white progressives who might be um, people like Edwin Stanton um, and Thaddeus Stevens, you've got white moderates and you've got white conservatives too. And those white conservatives are across the country. They're not just in the South. And they strenuously object to emancipation. And so once the war on freedom begins, these people, particularly the white conservatives, are happy to look the other way. You know, they're willing to sort of believe white, white, you know, the sort of white Southerners who are waging war on freedom in the South, that there's nothing going on, that this is all made up. You can't trust black people. Um, the black people are making this up or, you know, even some of the white progressives are making it up um, because they want to justify punishing the South even more. So you've got these sort of competing narratives. Um, and, you know, people know about the violence at the time, but you've got this organized campaign that's not only in the South, it's in the North and the West, that is essentially gaslighting, you know, a lot of the sort of Black people and the white and their white progressive allies. They're saying this violence isn't happening. And that's reflective of their own feelings and their own resistance to not only emancipation, but equal rights. 
um, in terms of Black people having equal protection under the law, due process under law, and Black men being able to vote. So there's a lot of resistance to this. And I think that's important to acknowledge because if anyone was in a position to stop the white war on freedom waged in the South, it was white Northerners and Westerners. But that's not who they were. And so they were happy to uh, look the other way, to say, you know, our interests, our time, our money, our resources are better spent driving uh, the indigenous peoples, um, the Native Americans who are out West off their lands onto reservations so we can take that. You know, so they are, you know, happy, eager and pressing to shift the focus from um, shift the focus from making sure African-Americans rights in the South are respected and enjoyed to something else, you know, anything else, anything other than um, building a more just world for black people in the South. There were a number of black men who were able to get elected during Reconstruction in spite of all the forces aligned to stop them. And while in office, they were able to enact some significantly progressive legislation and education, land reform, jury service. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So one of the things that we see, you know, in a number of counties in Alabama, in Mississippi, in South Carolina, you had during slavery black majorities. So they were the majority of the population. Now they were mostly they were mostly enslaved, but after the war, they're still in those same communities. And they're able to use the power of their numbers to elect black men to local office and state office. And they're able to send some uh, members to Congress, but it's in their local and state offices where they're able to sort of push for, uh, they're sort of, they're able to push uh, the most progressive reforms. The South didn't have a public school system. The Northern states did. And part of the reason they don't have it in the South is because a lot of the wealthiest people in the South, they won't allow themselves to be taxed in order to establish a public school system. Now their children are being educated, but they have governances or they're, they're sending them to schools, to colleges in uh, what we call the Ivies, um, mostly in the Northeast. So their kids are being educated. They're not worried about the white population gaining their education. But Black people having a really expansive vision of freedom understand how critical education is for everyone's freedom. And so when those Black men are elected into office and they help rewrite the state constitutions, one of the things that they do is implement um, or help with the establishment of a public school system that is free and available to anyone and everyone within the community. And that's just one of many reforms that they advance while they're in power. There has always been a huge difference in economic status between the enslavers and poor whites. I assume even between poor whites who could own slaves and those who could not. I had the impression from your book that terrorizing black people served to somewhat lessen the class stratification. In other words, the attitude was, let's find common ground in killing and humiliating former enslaved people. Would I be correct in that assumption that the violence brought Southerners, Southern whites together? Yes, absolutely. You know, you've got the former enslavers who are frustrated with um, losing uh, this, the labor that they had been able to steal. 
But I think it's important to recognize that they still had labor needs, you know. Um, but what they want to do is to maintain the same kind of control and domination over black people that they had enjoyed during slavery. What the landless white population, what many of them are terrified of is the prospect that they might be outworked by black people, that they might not have the same kind of um, privilege in the system that they had had while black people were in bondage. And so for a number of poor whites in the South, one of the things that we'll see is their gnawing grievance over seeing someone who had been a slave before the Civil War and during the war. And within a year or two, they have acquired land. They have run for office. They have opened their own churches and their own schools. You know, for some of them, you know, for some poor whites, you know, they had told themselves that black people were completely inferior. But black people are proving that that, you know, they're inherently inferior and black people, newly freed people are within a couple of years rising to become landowners, opening their own businesses, establishing their own schools. And so for them, they also want to tear down everything that black people had managed to accomplish so that they can retain their um, their status on a peg above them on this sort of hierarchy. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood on WOMR. Today we're talking about the suffering and determination of former slaves after the American Civil War. My guest is Professor Kadada E. Williams. Her latest book is I Saw Death Coming, A History of Terror and Survival in the War Against Reconstruction. In 1871, because courts were unable or unwilling to take action, the United States Congress did an extraordinary thing. They actually held hearings throughout the former Confederate states in which black women and men told their stories of being murdered, raped, tortured, beaten, and terrorized. What were the results of those hearings? Were, were the white paramilitaries ever punished? Well, they were arrested, um, you know, and what we'll see in the trials that that occur in places like South Carolina is that a lot of the white Southern juries were reluctant to participate in a federal investigation into this violence. Um, there's a lot of resistance in the local courts to the federal investigation. And even where you see the occasional conviction, uh, very few of the perpetrators, uh, the accused people who were tried and even those who were convicted, very few of them served. They're later pardoned, or they just simply don't show up, uh, you know, when they're supposed to uh, surrender themselves. It's a lot of them just sort of move on and throughout life. What the congressional investigation does do is it helps inspire or, you know, it helps propel the increase in federal troops in certain areas. Although it, we should be clear, that's never enough that, you know, the escalation or the increase in troop levels is never soon enough to, you know, stop violence from occurring. Um, and there's never enough and it can't, you know, that those troops can't stay there for long enough to make the violence in completely. But what they are able to do through the arrests and the investigation and the occasional sort of increase in troop levels is to drive the paramilitary violence underground. So violence continues. Um, throughout the end of Reconstruction, 
but you don't see the scale of paramilitary attacks occurring throughout the entire, like throughout an entire year, like it had been before. Where we see them more paramilitary attacks is during reconstruction. Uh, excuse me, is during uh, subsequent elections. So they're able to drive the Klan underground, the first Klan underground for a period of time. But the violence has already taken a toll. It's already done a significant amount of damage. And what the former enslaving class and poor whites who are invested in uh, white supremacy, what they know is how effective the violence is. And so they continue using it to tear down the rest of Reconstruction and then install Jim Crow. One thing that that we don't know an awful lot about, but that you talk about extensively in the book, is the lengths formerly enslaved people went to relocate their family members that had been sold off by their enslavers. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, they take to the roads. You know, one of the things that we know that historians, sociologists, anthropologists um, have argued is that the family is the most important institution for African-Americans. It was the one thing over which, while they were in bondage, they had even a little bit of control. They didn't even have complete control over that. But family was how they tried to protect themselves against the forces, the dehumanizing forces of slavery. And so family meant everything to them. And what we know is that after the Civil War and even during the war, you know, people, they leave farms and plantations as individuals, as groups, and they make a beeline sometimes to Union lines and other times to wherever they think a, um, a family member has been sold off. So they light out of farms and plantations trying to find their people. We see people walking, getting on trains, getting on boats, uh, trying to relocate um, kin who've been sold away from them. We know that they um, place ads in newspapers, sympathetic newspapers. They send letters. They do all of these things desperate to relocate their people. The vast majority of people are not going to be able to relocate their kin. Either people have died, they have, they don't have accurate information, or any number of things make it impossible for them to find their people. But there are some reunions. A lot of the reunions take place uh, in communities where someone was only sold from one plantation to the next, or someone was sold from one plantation in the state to another plantation in the state. Um, but it's much harder to relocate your family if you're someone in Virginia and they were sold away to Texas. So, but it does happen. There are some reunions. In so many ways, it feels like the Civil War and the War on Freedom never ended. That our country, and especially people of color who are living in it today, are suffering in many of the same ways. With that in mind... I'd like to ask you to talk about the importance of remembering and honoring the testimonies of the African-American survivors of Reconstruction's violence. Why is it so important that we remember their stories and not forget? That's a great question. I think, for one, I think we honor the bravery that it took for survivors to go and tell their stories. Many of them told their stories at great risk. I also think that there are lessons, they have lessons for us about how harmful this violence is. 
Um, they also tell us how fragile our democracy is. And I think that they leave us a roadmap for the things we kind of need to do in order to build a more just world for today and for tomorrow. The reality is that Americans at the time didn't really listen to the survivors of this violence. You know, we got the records, uh, they told their stories, and then the nation continued to move on. But families who were targeted in this targeted in the war on freedom, many of them never forgot what happened to them. And we still see evidence of that when um, formerly enslaved people were interviewed by the WPA in the 1930s. They still clearly remember what happened when their families were targeted. So I think that if we say that Black Lives Matter, if we believe in a just world, if we want to secure our democracy, we have to understand an earlier moment when our democracy was actively, purposefully, willfully attacked and the fallout in order to try to sort of stop that from happening again, I think. I want to thank you very much. We'll have to leave it right there. My guest today has been Wayne State University African-American History Professor Kadada E. Williams. I want to thank Maddie Dunn for his tech work on the show. I Saw Death Coming was recently published by Bloomsbury. This is Ira Wood with the lowdown on America's ongoing experiment in creating a multiracial democracy, one interview at a time. Bye for now. 